The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Uh, why don't you take your Bibles and not turn to Daniel? Why don't you turn to Psalm 97? Uh, we'll be uh, back in, uh, in Daniel soon enough, but wanted to spend some more time to uh, work through that text before uh, uh, bringing it before you again. I had all kinds of questions in my small group about the 77s, and uh, we'll, we'll get to all of that uh, in the weeks to come. But uh, uh, for this week, uh, why don't we turn our attention to Psalm 97? Psalm 97. We understand that God is exalted, don't we? You know, when we talk about God and how high and lofty the Lord is, the word exalt is a word that we used often. Uh, that word exalt in Scripture means to ascend, to climb, to go up. So when we say that God is exalted, we're saying that he is elevated, that he's high, that he's above us, that he's far above all else, that God is supreme. But sadly, for many today, the Lord is not recognized as being supreme and I'm not talking about them out there. I'm talking about us in here. Uh, because if uh, we were to take a, a, a quiz, if I passed around a, a sheet of paper and said, hey, there's a pop quiz today in church, you know, is God sovereign, true or false? You know, yes or no, is God sovereign? I'm sure that we'd all pass that, that quiz. Yes, God is sovereign. Yeah, I, I got that one right. But when we actually take a look at uh, the way that we live, the way that we think, the way that our emotions turn might have a different answer that you might want to put on that quiz. Do I really believe that God is sovereign? Do I trust in the sovereignty of God? Am I rejoicing knowing that God is in control of absolutely everything? In his book, Made in Our Image, Stephen Lawson put his finger on a principal problem within the church. He explains his, the problem in the church by way of his own confession. And he says this, he says, I thought... I really thought I had God all figured out. So I was content to cruise through my spiritual life, taking the path of least resistance even as I prepared for my ministry. And then unexpectedly, I ventured upon a subject in God's word that confronted me, that convicted me, that challenged me like no other truth that I had ever encountered. It was a topic so vast, so towering, so dominant that it overshadowed everything in my life. My heart was gripped as I had never, as it had never been before. My soul was stunned as I studied it intensely for the very first time. And what was the subject? The subject was God. Here I was in seminary preparing for ministry, and I found myself asking the question, who is God? And he goes on to consider, uh, to, to speak about how uh, the, the point of theology that, that he hadn't really come to grasp was the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything. That this is the God that I say that I believe in. Do I, do I really trust in the God who's sovereign over everything? A.W. Pink says this about the sovereignty of God. He says, what do we mean by the expression, the sovereignty of God? We mean the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. And just think about that. What does it mean for God to be God if he's not in charge? I mean, that's, that's basic to who God is. And I want to submit to you that the, the reason that our prayers are not powerful, why our worship is not vibrant, 
why our evangelism is not bold, why our walk with God is not obedient, it's because we've answered the question wrongly, who is God? So what I want to do today is to to focus our attention and just to catch a glimpse of who our God truly is in Psalm 97. Why don't you follow with me as I read Psalm 97, starting at verse 1. It says, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes up before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples have seen his glory. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and uh, Father, we ask that uh, you would open up our eyes, our understanding to, to who our God is. And Father, that you would help us, Lord, as we walk through this text, that, that Father, that for some of us that we might even see for the first time, uh, Lord, exactly what the, the Scriptures declare about who our God is. And uh, Father, I pray that uh, we would not just see these things, but that we would be transformed by these things. And uh, Father, that uh, you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You really need like a wide-angle lens to, to catch everything that the psalm says about who God is, because our, our God is just too immense. You can't get back far enough to take in the, the full view of who God is. From the very opening line of this psalm, we're called to attention with the declaration, the Lord reigns in verse 1. This comes to us in the form of an announcement similar to what we find in Isaiah 52.7 where it says, uh, your God reigns. How, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Your God reigns. Your God's in charge. And this psalm does not just offer this isolated declaration of who God is. It's actually part of a, a cluster of, of psalms uh, known as enthronement psalms. We often think about psalms as being disconnected from one another, but it's a collection of, of poems, and it's easy to see that Psalm 93 to Psalm 99 all belong together because they have a common focus on God as king. Each of these psalms, with the exception of Psalm 94, explicitly speak of his sovereign rule. If you would, take your Bibles and just flip back uh, to Psalm 93. Take a look at uh, Psalm 93, verse 1. Starts out in verse 1 by saying, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Look at Psalm 95. Look at verses uh, 2 and 3. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Take a look at Psalm 96. Look at verse 9. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Look at Psalm 98. Psalm 98. Look at verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyres, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the king. He's the king. Look at Psalm 99 in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. And you get the point. Every, everywhere we turn, the Lord reigns. He reigns. He reigns. He's the king. He's majestic. Transports us to the very throne room of, of heaven and says, this is who your God is. That word reign simply means to be king. He rules. He's in charge. He's sovereign. He's over all. And we learn several things about the reign of God in this psalm before us back in Psalm 97. 
And uh, this list could be expanded, but I'll uh, just give you at least uh, four points that we learn about the sovereignty of God. Number one, we learn that the Lord reigns eternally. It's an eternal reign of God. Verse one, the Lord reigns. Now that verb reigns is in the, the perfect tense, speaks of a completed action. And while it's true that we could look forward to the millennial reign when Jesus Christ will return, when we will come to the earth, we can't limit it to that alone. God is reigning at all times. God's, God's throne is established, and when has it been established? Look at verse 2. Verse 2 of uh, Psalm 93, back in Psalm 93. Your throne is established from of old. From of old. It's parallel to the words, you are from everlasting. So how long has God been reigning? Forever. <laughs> Forever. From all of eternity, he's been in charge. Not only is his reign an eternal reign, his reign is also a universal reign. Down in verse 5 of Psalm 97, it speaks about how the mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. He reigns over every place. There's no place where there are boundaries to the reign of God. His reign extends to the furthest corners of the globe. He's declared Lord over Jew and Gentile alike. The many islands in verse 1, let the many islands be glad, speaks about the Gentile nations, the, 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 the lands that are far away. He's reigning over everywhere. Also in verse 6, it speaks of all peoples. He reigns over every person. So Gentiles were not excluded from this reign of God. Everybody was included, and it's worth mentioning, not only is his reign eternal and universal, his reign is also powerful. And by, by powerful, uh, we can look at the, uh, the examples of his power, where it speaks about how fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries in verse 3, how the mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. I mean, mountains are known for their, their size, their stability, but before the presence of God, they just wilt, they just melt away. Down in verse 9, it speaks about the God who is most high, exalted above all gods. God doesn't look up to anyone. Everybody is beneath him. And not only is his reign powerful, his reign is also righteous. And that's a comfort to us because how could we rejoice in the reign of a God who is eternal and universal and all-powerful if his reign is also not righteous? You know, when, when power gets into the hands of the wrong people, it's terrifying for people. But the power is in the hands of a righteous king. He is righteous. Look at verse 2. It says, clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And it is his righteousness that gives us a reason to rejoice. Righteousness and justice, the foundation of his throne, the basis of his rule is perfect righteousness. God is not a God who bends the rules because of pressure. His judgments never violate his holiness, his holy character. God is predictable in what he does. And this is why people can rejoice in his reign. This is the one who's in, in charge because he's righteous. He's, he's the one who's, who's in charge and he always does what is right. And we understand that all will be made right one day. Evil will one day be punished. Righteousness will one day be rewarded, and God will not overlook anything. And we need to be reminded of this in the kind of world that we live in, don't we? Because we live in a world that is filled with so much wrong. So much goes on in this life that's just unjust, where people take advantage of you. Where, where, where people seem to get away with their, their evil. We live in a world where sin seems to be protected, not only protected, but it's promoted. We have months dedicated to promoting sin. And if we haven't mentioned the, the problems just in the world, what about the problems in the church? 
We've got problems right here in the church. There's false teaching in the church. There's false shepherds who uh, are concerned more about their own reign than they are the reign of God. The church is worried about happiness more than it is about holiness. And then we find in the church that the problems of husbands who don't love their wives, who don't lead their homes in sacrificial love, wives who are angry and unsubmissive, children who are disobedient, unthankful, arrogant. Then you add to that the, 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 the different afflictions that we face, sickness, death, pain, grief. And it's just a relief to know that somebody somewhere is in charge, isn't it? <laughs> that, that there's one who sits above us who is righteous and all-powerful, who's actually in charge, and we can rejoice in that reign of God. Not only do we need that reminder, but the people who were originally, uh, this was revealed to originally also needed that reminder. Now, we can't be certain about the date of the composition of this Psalm, but some believe that this psalm was a post-exilic psalm following the Babylonian captivity. And as the nation of Israel has spent the last 70 years under foreign rule, subjected to a foreign nation, that they needed to be reminded again of who's really in charge, that there is a God who is over us, and that these foreign gods that we've been subjected to are really not the ones who are in charge at all. And it's easy to see how this return to the nation uh, and to the capital, the city of Jerusalem, would be an appropriate time for them to be reminded of who's really in charge, who's really king, and to be reminded that God is in the same place that he's always been. You know, there's that question after 9-11, you know, where was God on 9-11? In the same place that he's always been. <laughs> the same place that he's always been. He's always been in charge. Where was God after the tragedies of your life? He's in the same place that he's always been. Nothing has shaken him from his throne He's still in charge. He's still reigning. And the, the worldly rulers are just pawns in the hand of the master. And unlike the, the Babylonian gods, you know, this Lord doesn't need anybody to, to, to prop him up. The Babylonian gods uh, had a festival. The, the Babylonian people held a festival every year to enthrone their gods, to, you know, to, to, to basically put their God on the throne. We don't, we don't need to enthrone our God. <laughs> God is the one who is enthroned, and he just reminds us of who's in charge. He reminds us of, of, of who is sitting on the throne, and that's what these psalms remind us of, is the one who reigns. Psalm 2, you have the, the messianic king that God speaks of, and he says, I have installed my king. I, I'm the one who, who, who installs my king. And he, he doesn't rule you know, based on the popular vote, you know, whether we want to, uh, to vote him in or not. You know, that's, that's not our, our place to do. And in the, the text for today, there's uh, three responses, three correct responses to the reign of God. In verses 1 to 6, the earth is to rejoice and to fear him. Verses 7 to 9, the wicked are to be ashamed and worship him. In verses 10 to 12, the righteous are to be glad and obey him. So let's take a look at the, the first one. Let the earth rejoice and fear him. Look at verse 1 again. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many islands be glad. This psalm is uh, clearly a psalm of celebration, joy, gladness. Verse 8, it speaks about how Zion heard this and was glad. Verse 11, light is sown like seed for the righteous, gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord. And verses 1 through 6 in particular focus on the whole earth joining in the celebration of our God. We're all to, to rejoice in this God's reign. But right in the middle of this, this call to celebration, down in verse 4, it speaks about something that's terrifying. Look at verse 4. It says, His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. And, 
you might wonder, you know, in, this, in the midst of talking about this inexpressible joy given to God, what are these, what are these terrifying pictures doing here? You know, the, the lightning's lighting up the world and the earth trembling before him. Like, like, what does that have to do with the celebration? Maybe hard to understand how both of them can be side by side. But when you look back into the Old Testament and see the response at the declaration of the king, this is exactly the kind of response that happened. You had celebration on one side and absolute horror on the other side. If you flip back to, to 1 Kings chapter 1 just for a minute, this is uh, just a, a fascinating story and uh, really kind of makes the point here regarding the reign of, of the king and, and how that was received by the people. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we find uh, David. He's uh, well advanced in years. He's about to die. But the only problem is, is that he hasn't declared who's going to be the king after him yet. His son Adonijah was uh, David's fourth son and probably the oldest at this point because uh, the others had passed away. And he decides to take matters into his own hand. You know, instead of waiting for David to declare who's king, you know, I'll just, I'll just save him the trouble and declare myself to be king. By this time, Adonijah, like I said, was probably the eldest son. Ammon is dead. Amnon is dead. Absalom is dead. Chiliab's no longer mentioned, maybe because he's passed away as well. And everybody's wondering, who's going to be the next, the next king? And uh, Adonijah, like I said, kind of takes this into his own hands and declares that he would be the king. And everybody's celebrating with him regarding his kingship. But that wasn't David's choice. <laughs> he wasn't David's choice. Look down at verse 39. It says, Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. That's the choice. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him and the people were playing on flutes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth shook at their noise. So there's a loud party so loud that the earth is starting to shake by the, the reverberation of the noise. Now this is a party. I mean, it's rocking the house, right? Rocking the land. You can just envision this crowd gathering around the king, shouting, rejoicing, playing their instruments. The party's just getting started. But at Adonijah's place, there was a different story going on. Look at verse 49. It says, Then all the guests of Adonijah, you know, at a different location, then all the guests of Adonijah were terrified. <laughs> I mean, imagine the shock, you know. Here they are thinking that they're enthroning their king, but there's another king that's already having his party. And they arose, and each went on his way. And then verse 50 says, And Adonijah was afraid of Solomon. He arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar was a place where you would go to, uh, to seek for mercy. It was a symbol of mercy. Verse 51, it says, Now it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon. For behold, he has taken the hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Why did he react that way? Uh, because anybody who poses a threat to the king is at risk, <laughs> like is in danger, because I've been opposing this one who's truly ruling. Why is there both celebration and abject fear at the same time? Because there are certain people who desire the Lord to reign, and there's others who want somebody else. We have people who are saying, we don't want this one to reign over us. We'd rather rule ourselves. So we have joy and celebration at the same moment. 
We understand that God is the one who, who rules, and there are many who don't desire the Lord to rule. And that's why we have this, the clouds, the thick darkness mentioned back in uh, Psalm 97. Fire going up before him, burning up his, what? His adversaries. This king has enemies. This king has adversaries. And these are the people who don't desire the reign of this king. And the picture is terrifying. Verse 2, clouds and thick darkness around him. Fire and lightning you know, is also mentioned in verse 3 and 4. This is a terrifying picture. You know, these, these clouds are not your kind of nice, puffy summer clouds. These are threatening clouds. Causes you to run for cover. His fire goes out to burn up his adversaries round about. Not a tame fire that could be controlled, but a blazing inferno. This is a, a picture of divine wrath. Scripture says that our God is a consuming what? Consuming fire. This is who our God is. We have the lightnings which are said to illumine the world against the, the, the backdrop of this thick black background of the clouds. There's the, the lightnings that strike the world. Scientists tell us that, uh, that lightning strikes the earth roughly 100 times every second and claims more than 200 victims per year in the United States alone. And while there's some who survive lightning strikes, there's other bolts that you just don't walk away from. You know, some bolts have an electric potential of as much as 100 million volts. And God says, those are my lightning bolts. You, you, don't, you don't get away from a God like this. I, I, I've always said this, like, two things that, that keep me from, uh, from sin. One is I just love God, and the other is I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm terrified to disobey. Because God is at no shortage of resources to deal with me. And the same is true for you. And how much more is that true for his enemies, his adversaries? Do you really think that you're going to get away from this sovereign God who's universally reigns, who's reigned eternally, who reigns powerfully, who reigns righteously? Do you really think that you're going to get away from this God? Psalm 97 reminds us that the adversaries don't get away, and it's at his presence, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Uh, They're in his presence. And this is the kind of response that, you know, was even true at, the, at Mount Sinai when, you know, the, the Lord lit up the, the mountain with fire and lightning and smoke on the top of Mount Sinai. And it was to, to really strike fear in the heart of the people that this is a God who's worthy of being obeyed. You know, Moses says, you're not to fear, but you're to fear. <laughs> what does that mean? It's like, don't be, you know, so petrified of God that you don't move. You're, you know, just paralyzed. Uh, but you need to remember this picture the next time you think about sinning. Think about who this God is that commands you to obedience. This is the God that you stand before. And the mountains will literally melt along with all the other elements, the Scripture says, in the last day. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Why would you choose to oppose a God like this? I, I remember sharing the gospel uh, with uh, one individual, and uh, he told me, you know, maybe I'm just made for hell. You know, I tried to warn him about judgment to come, and he says, well, maybe I'm just made for hell. You know, it can't be any worse than what I'm going through in this life, is what he told me. You know, so basically, like, I'm, I'm not worried about the afterlife because I've got enough problems in this life. You know, it's, whatever I'm going through now is worse than anything that God could dish out. It's just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I told him, you have no idea what you're up against. 
and that, that hell is a place where God unleashes the wrath of his fury for eternity. You know, you know the scariest words about heaven? Forever. Forever. That you never get out. There's no escape. Forever. Sin is nothing to play with. And the next time you think about, you know, uh, setting up your own kingdom, you need to think about whose kingdom you're opposing. This is, this is the kingdom of, of God. And the heavens declare his righteousness, verse 6. The heavens declare it. This is, this is what we call general revelation. It's uh, God's disclosure of himself at all times and all places to all people. That God makes himself known. And what is it that the heavens declare about God? That God is glorious. That God is worthy. That God's worthy of your worship. He's worthy of your praise. It says the, the heavens declare, what else? His righteousness. That this one that's created all things is the one who's absolutely righteous and all the peoples have seen his glory. Everybody's seen it. That's what Romans 1 talks about. That that the, the, the glory of God has been made known even in what he has made so that the unbeliever is without excuse. There's nobody that you're talking to today, sharing the gospel with, that has an excuse not to believe in God because God has made himself known, made himself evident by the things that have been made so that they stand without excuse. The heavens declare his righteousness. So what are we to do? Let the whole earth rejoice in him. Turn to him. Stop being his adversary and turn to God. Let the whole earth rejoice. Stop your rebellion and turn to this king. That's the message of verses 1 to 6. Number two, let the wicked be ashamed and worship him. Look at verses 7 and 9. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols, Worship him, all you gods. Zion heard this and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The next group of people this psalm addresses are, you know, not just the earth in general, which has, you know, different responses to the king, but now he focuses in on the wicked. Let all those be ashamed who serve graven images. Be ashamed. After the description of God's reign, the fierceness of his wrath, I mean, what, what, what foolishness is it to, to serve anything else, to serve anyone else? And what makes this even more embarrassing is that these gods that they're glorying in, he says, you need to be ashamed of them. <laughs> be, be ashamed, those of you who serve graven images. The very same gods that were a cause for pride, he says, that should be the cause of your shame. You know, it's, it's not pride, it's shame. And, and these idols that were, were made, they were made in such a way that they represented, you know, these deities of, you know, who were powerful in their minds. Uh, but this worship that was uh, uh, given to them is, is shameful. It's shameful. And we don't need to be ashamed to say that uh, worship of any other god is shameful. You know, if you have a different religion, you know, it's not that, hey, I respect everybody's positions and everybody's opinions. No, actually, what you're believing in is shameful. It's shameful not to believe in the true God. It's shameful not to believe in the God of Scripture. It's shameful not to believe in the Bible. You know, we're we're told that, you know, we need to have like this kind of respect for, for everybody, every position, this kind of pluralistic society that we live in. You know, we're to sit across the table from the Muslims and the Buddhists and the agnostics and the Hindus and you know, we're all just kind of on this level playing field and, you know, we respect their positions as much as they should respect ours. But, um, but that's not what the scripture says. <laughs> the Bible says you should be ashamed. 
you've turned away from the, the one true God who's made himself known to you. And that's a shameful thing to turn away from the living God. It's a shameful thing. And uh, here he says that even these gods that you make up, that even they need to bow down to the true God. Why don't you uh, flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 5. This is one of my uh, favorite stories here in the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 5, this event takes place during the time of the the judges. Israel's in a, a period of spiritual and moral decline. They're dwelling in a land of promise, but they haven't fully possessed that land. And one of Israel's enemies is the Philistines. And in 1 Samuel chapter 5, Israel's lost a battle to the Philistines, and they've taken the ark of God. And uh, 1 Samuel chapter uh, 5 uh, describes the, the scene of what happened here. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It says, Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, one of these... Uh, uh, to the, uh, the Philistine cities here. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Now, Dagon was one of the, the Philistines' chief gods. It's uh, believed to be a god with a half-human body and half of a fish's body. You know, so it looked human from the, uh, the waist up and like a fish from the waist down. And he was worshipped as the god of the sea and the god of grain. And uh, they probably considered the ark of God that they had just acquired from the Israelites to be like Dagon's trophy. You know, let's bring the trophy home to our God. Let them see what he's won. Verse 3, it says, When the Ashdodites rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, you know, where he should have been in the first place, on his face. So they took Dagon and set him up in his place again. I mean, you can't have your, your God bowing down prostrate to the you know, image of the true God. You know, so they set him back up. You know, let's, let's not have Dagon bound down before the, the ark of, of God. Verse 4, But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off. On the threshold, only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So now, now he's, he's limbless and headless, and he's still prostrate before the ark of the Lord. Verse 5, therefore neither the priest of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on, our, on Dagon our God. I mean, save our God. <laughs> you know, we need to save our God from... The, the, the God of Israel, they, they knew when enough was enough, right? God's judgment fell on them and their so-called gods. And symbolically, the, the false God prostrated himself before the true God. The wicked were disgraced for their belief in a false God. And that's how the wicked need to respond. They need to be disgraced. It's a disgrace to follow anybody else but the true God. Back in uh, Psalm 97, it says, Zion heard this and was glad. And the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O God. Zion refers to the uh, inhabitants of uh, Jerusalem, the city of God. The daughters of, of Judah refer to the villages that surrounded the city. So Jerusalem is pictured like the, the mother city and the villages around were like the daughters. And they rejoice in the judgments of God that the, that the false gods will one day be judged. 
And they turned to the Lord. Like I said, maybe coming out of captivity themselves, they're rejoicing that this is the God who truly reigns. And they offer their praise to God in verse 9. You are the Lord most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. God, God, you are not just, not just exalted. You are you're exalted far. You're, you're not just uh, above gods. You're above all gods. You're not just high. You're the most high. <laughs> you know, it's just adding all these, you know, adjectives to describe the reign of God. Like, this is who our God is. He's far above all. Mesopotamia had about 4,000 gods to choose from. And uh, here it lets them know that there were 4,000 losers, all of them. And this is why the wicked should be ashamed, because any God that you choose besides this one does not win. You should be ashamed. There's nothing virtuous about being open to a lie. In the last section of this psalm, it's let the righteous be glad and obey him. Look at verses 10 and 12. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like seed for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. And here we go from the earth being addressed, the wicked being addressed, to now the righteous are addressed. The earth is to rejoice, the wicked are to be ashamed, and the righteous are to be glad. Look at, look at verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Hate evil. We're, 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 to, we're to hate evil. What is evil? And we could have spent our whole time just speaking about that verse alone because it's an important exhortation for us. You know, we've talked about rejoicing in the reign of God, but how can we rejoice in God's reign if we love that which he hates? The Lord's reign is concerned with righteousness and justice and holiness. So so how can you rejoice in the reign of God if you're also protecting your sin? Because that's what God hates. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about those who are believers, those who believe in him. They are to, to hate their sin. And not just the sin on the outside. You know, that's kind of pretty easy, you know, to hate the sins that other people commit. We're not just to hate the sins out there. We're to hate the sins in here, right? Search me, O oh God. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you hate the sins in your own life as much as you hate the sins that you see in others? This is what the Lord has called us to do. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. We're not to make a truce with evil. We're to hate it. I love what uh, John Owen said. He says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. (laughs) Right? You, You hate your sin. Hate your sin. And he calls us the the righteous, the godly ones, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. How how are we made godly? There's only one way, (laughs) that we've been justified by the righteousness of Christ himself. In the Old Testament, they look forward to that payment that would be made. From our perspective, we look back to the payment that was made. But it's all the same way. It's, It's faith in God's promises. That's how we're declared righteous in the sight of God. Psalm 32 speaks about that righteousness where David says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's how we're declared righteous, that we confess our sins before the Lord and receive from him his righteousness. There's a lot of people who are willing to talk about the sins of, other, but, of others, but how many people are willing to say that I'm the man? <laughs> I'm the man. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. We're to be glad in the Lord. We are to hate the evil, those of us who love the Lord. He's the one who preserves our souls. He's the one who protects us. He's the one who delivers us from the hand of the, the wicked. We're to, we're to look to him. And it says, for those who are righteous, that, that light is sown for them. What, what does it mean when it says light, light is sown? You know, for those who are upright in, in heart, it says light is sown like seed for the, the righteous, gladness for the, the upright in heart. This joy and, and, and gladness, you know, that we uh, rejoice in, uh, it's as a, as a joy in the Lord. This, this gladness, it's, it's, it's light for us. It's like light that's been, been sown for us. Like a, like, like a garden of, of, of joy that's been given to the believer. Be glad in the Lord, you righteous ones. Give thanks to his holy name. It's characteristic of those who trust in, in God that they would hunger and thirst for his righteousness. And light is sown for them. For those who hunger for righteousness those who have a hatred for sin, those that love the the Lord have pledged their allegiance to him. He's the one who preserves their souls and grants us deliverance. And we're delivered because of the God who reigns, (laughs) because of the God who reigns. And we're left to to herald the the good news of this one who reigns. Let the earth rejoice in this reign of God. We're to tell others about this reign. Zion heard this and was glad. We're to spread this news. Light is a, a figure of speech, many things in the Bible, but it's used as a, a figure for joy in this context. You know, it uses light in that, that way. Uh, we even talk about, you know, uh, some, some people might say that, you know, hey, when my wife walked in the room that I just lit up, right? Talks about this expression of, of joy, and that's the picture that we have here in the reign of God, that light is sown for us. We, we, we have joy when we think about what he's done for us, right? And then we're given this final exhortation to be glad in the Lord. Just like the crowd that gathered around Solomon and started the party because we know who our king is, we're to start the celebration because we know who our king is. And in what category do you see yourself today? (laughs) Where where are you today? Are you rejoicing in the reign of this king? Do you have reason to rejoice or do you have reason to be ashamed? Have you truly dedicated yourself to him? Do you rejoice in the reign of this great God? He's a God of great compassion, but he's also a God of fierce wrath for those who are his adversaries. And maybe you're listening to this and you have not yet submitted your life to Christ. You're still running from him. You're still rolling the dice and figuring that, that maybe it's not going to be that bad. The Bible lets us know that, um, that the Lord, the one that, with whom we have to do, is a terrifying God. We must trust in him. We must turn to him. The, the place to run from the wrath of God is to God. That, that's where we run from God. It's to him. <laughs> Would you run to God today? And for the rest of us, are you rejoicing in God today?
And one of the ways that you can just check yourself as to whether or not you're truly rejoicing is am I truly hating the evil in my life? That's, that's a demonstration of whether or not we truly rejoice in the reign of God. Do we hate evil? Are we turning away from evil? Are we, are we coddling and protecting the evil in our hearts? Or are we, we hating it, despising it? Are we making excuses for, for evil in our lives? Or do we really turn from it? And are we sharing this good news with others? Is it, is it just, just our gladness or is this gladness that we want everybody? The whole world needs to rejoice in, this reign of, in the reign of this God. That's what we're to do. We're to proclaim the excellencies of him, the same one who saved us. We're to proclaim his excellencies to the rest of the world around us. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this text. And, uh, Father, we pray that we would rejoice in the reign of our God. Uh, Father, we thank you that there is, a, there is a God who reigns righteously, universally, powerfully, eternally. And, Father, for those of us who've turned to this God, Lord, that, that we can rejoice in this reign because there's protection for those of us who belong to this God my Father, that uh, as we look at the world around us, Lord, that there's trouble on every side, but uh, there's safety in the arms of our God. And we can say with the, the hymn writer that we know whom we have believed, and he is able and he's faithful unto that which we've committed unto him against that day. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, as, as your people. My Father, that we would rejoice in you, Lord, even under difficult circumstances, that we would know that there is one who reigns, there's one who's returning one day to gather uh, those who belong to him, to himself. And Father, we uh, thank you for our Savior, our Lord, who's been uh, demonstrated to us as this same God that we read about here, our Lord, that he's also the one who preserves the souls of those that have trusted in him and have turned from their sins. Our Father, we pray that you'd be glorified and honored. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.